Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. If you want to understand competition, spend a little time roaming the aisles of your favorite supermarket. The stakes are enormous in this zero-sum game, and the playing field is dominated by the big national brands. Consider this. You probably have a better chance of pitching in the big leagues than you do cracking into that ecosystem. Keep a sharp eye out near the frozen food section because you might bump into Sister Schubert, who likes to keep her finger on the consumer pulse. Yes, that's Sister Schubert, the frozen roll lady. Are your taste buds tingling? This week's guest takes us on a deep dive into her remarkable underdog success story. The one-time flight attendant with the entrepreneurial spirit who once hocked her old station wagon to buy a much-needed oven. Eventually, she talked her way onto grocery store shelves across the Southeast and beyond. The empire she built, based on her grandmother's recipe, has made her a household name, rivaling Betty Crocker and Sarah Lee. How did she do it? Simple. By creating a product that her customers couldn't live without. Well, we're in Birmingham with uh, Sister Schubert, and I feel like I'm sitting next to Betty Crocker. <laughs> Thank or you for, Sarah Lee. I or, mean, uh, Sarah know. Lee, that's right. Is Sarah Lee a real person? Well, she was a real person, but she never cooked. Her daddy just named his pound cake after her. Oh. So she well, was a real person, though. What was your favorite food growing up? My favorite food growing up was fried chicken, and I did not like rice. I would have to sit at the dinner table forever to finish my rice. But I loved fried chicken, and I loved oysters. And my daddy would have oyster stew for dinner sometimes, and I would just stand by him. And my mother would go, nobody wants oysters. And I loved oysters. So I would stand by him and wait until he let me have one. And I loved it. 
you grew up in Troy, right? Did. Tell me about growing up in Troy. Growing up in Troy was like a wonderful little small town, wonderful adventure. And the neat thing about it was we had relatives. My father and his two sisters all had children, and we all lived in different places, but close places like Noonan, Birmingham, and Troy. And when we would all get together, it was like we shared same experiences, even though we lived in different places. My cousins in Birmingham had a little bit more of an experience with the big city than, but but those of us that lived in Noonan, Georgia, and Troy, Alabama had similar experiences in the way we grew up. And we would spend summers together. I would go to Noonan and Vic would come to Troy and we would, we would have, and I would go to Birmingham. I mean, we all were a very close family and loved it, my fondest memories are when we would all be together. And but growing up in Troy was like a little dream world because it was so neat back then. Everybody knew everybody. We lived in a little neighborhood where when the streetlights came on, you had to go home and you knew that. That was our sign. Everybody signed to go home when the streetlights came on. And what did you take out of, you know, just small town values at that point? How did that shape you? Well, I grew up loving being together with my family, loving family meals together, loving being with my grandparents, loving knowing that they were there. You know, they were always a part of our lives growing up. Even though they lived in different places, we we still all were together. And what was it about the ritualistic nature of a meal that impacted you? Well, I remember distinctly that my grandmother had a beautiful home and she had a breakfast room that had a huge table and she had a dining room that had a huge table. And we would have breakfast in the breakfast room, but we would have lunches and dinners in the dining room. And I don't know that that's anything that goes on in today's world, but I know that some people may have a countertop in their kitchen that's called their breakfast room. But when we sat down for breakfast, it was a set table with china, dishes, tablecloth, everything. And same for lunch. My grandmother made every meal special, every meal special. And she taught that to me. And that just became ingrained in my heart that I was going to make every meal special for my children. Whether we sit at our countertop in the kitchen, I put placemats, I have a flower arrangement, I make it special. I don't, you know, and I remember her telling me once, because I was her child that loved to bake and cook. I was her grandchild that always would go early when we would have lunch or dinner with her and help her and do whatever can I do. And one day we were, I was there and she said, well, let's put the, let's put the napkins and the silver out and do that. And I said, but Gami, it's just us. It's just a family. And she said, I can have no finer company than my family. So I learned that very early on, that to treat your family as though they're the finest company you could ever have at your table is something I never forgot. What did you dream about when you were a little girl? Oh my gosh, I dreamed about seeing the world. I'm a Gemini, so I always wanted to travel. Whenever my daddy was in the furniture business and he would go to Atlanta to the furniture market or Chicago on the train, I wanted to go with him. And my mother would say, make him take you to a store and buy you a dress. And we would get there and he would go, you want to go to the baseball game? And I'd go, yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Daddy loved to take me on trips with him because I was his, he had four girls and one boy, and I was the second boy. So I was the one that wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, you know, because he needed to have a boy. So I was the one that, and, and it was so funny because my mom would say, now don't go to the baseball game this time. Go get him to take you to Macy's. Get him to take you to somewhere and buy something. And we'd go to Bray's baseball games and have a wonderful time. So I'll never forget them saying, the bill is here. And my daddy would say, don't listen to that. <laughs> so you went to Auburn. You went to Troy. I did. You went to Alabama too, right? I tried all three schools in the state of Alabama. I loved them all too. I just wanted to see where did I need to belong. What should I do with my life? Fair to say that you were still trying to figure it out at that point. Yes, right? I was. Like a lot of people. Well, my daddy was in the furniture business, so I thought, I'm going to be in interior design and come back and work with my daddy. You know, a lot of children believe that they're going to work with their, you know, their family business. And so I was the only one interested in that. And so I went to Auburn. Well, I went to Alabama first. And the guy, my counselor said, why are you here? Because really Auburn has a better school for interior design than, than we do right now. I'm not sure that's true today, but they did back then. And so I transferred to Auburn. And I did that for several years. I almost graduated. And then all of a sudden I started hearing from some of my friends that, wow, um, most of my friends were becoming school teachers. They were getting degrees and things like that. And then a friend of mine said, well, I, there's an opening. It, have you ever applied to Delta Airlines for stewardess position? They make a lot of money back then. They made more money than anybody else in, in the female world at that time. And so I said, sure, I, I'll try that. So I got an interview, and of course I got the job, and it was like, where do you want to be based? And the Gemini and me wanted to travel the world. So I said, well, now let's try Houston, Texas. So I'll go there and see what that's like. So I did that and got married and immediately had a precious daughter and decided maybe I need to settle down now. I can't travel the world. I have a child now, and I need to. So I called my daddy and I said, Daddy, I'm going to come home and work for you in your furniture business. I've got some training, pretty good bit, almost graduated in interior design, was loving what I was doing, loved it, worked with him, and, but I loved the baking and cooking, just never left my heart, never. And what my grandmother had instilled in me to love to do that. So I started, because I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit. My father was an entrepreneur. His father was. My grandmother that taught me how to make these roles when her husband died and my father went off in, into the war, World War II, and there was no one to, to manage the furniture business. My grandmother came up, never worked a day in her life outside of the home, ran that furniture business beautifully. I saw a total different respect for her that she took herself out of her environment and said, I'm going to keep this business going. You do what you have to do. Sometimes. You do what you have to do. And she worked with the gentlemen, two gentlemen that were helping run that furniture business. And she made that work. And my daddy came home and he made that work. And then I started working with my dad. But that love of bacon and cooking just wouldn't go away. So I started a little catering business on the side because I'm always want to, maybe I can do a little bit more and I can make this happen. And 
So one of the items that I made in my catering was my grandmother's rolls. And people started calling me and asking me for the rolls. Even if I wasn't catering the party for them, they were, can I have some of those rolls? My family's coming for Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas and just having a family reunion and can I get some of those rolls? I was making those rolls on the side just more than I was catering. And I thought, wow, people like these rolls. And then our church had a little frozen food fair back in 1989. And I baked about 20 pans of my rolls. This is another God intervention because I always thought you had to bake those rolls. And when I made them for everybody else, I'd make sure it was right at five o'clock when they were going to pick them up. Their rolls would be warm. All they had to do was just put them on the table. And I never frozen them. And this was a frozen food fair. And, and this and this is key. Now, this yeah, is this is turn, key. This turning is another point in your life. Key point that in this ju- business. They just happened to be having a frozen food, food fair. fair. And they said, everybody in the church, make your favorite item, whether it's your sweet potato casserole, your dressing, whatever it is. I said, well, I'm the roll lady. Everybody thinks of me as delivering rolls for babies being born, for somebody sick, for whatever's going on, for church, uh, potlucks, whatever. And so I thought, well, I've never frozen them. So I tried it. I froze about 20 pans. And they also, and they came out just fine. And I thought, wow, this is great. You can freeze these and they're fine. So you didn't realize at this point. No, at this point, I didn't know that this was going to work at all. So the next year, they asked me if I could do those again and sell them at the frozen food fair. So I said, sure. I made about 80 pans that year. They also. So I went, wow, this is great. So by 1992, that third frozen food fair, after about two weeks, the church secretary called me and she said, they asked me, could you put, can we just put this on a list so people can take orders for them? I went, sure. She called me after about two weeks and she said, sister, we've got over 300 orders for your rolls. And I said, in Troy, Alabama. In Troy, Alabama, at this little frozen food fair. People were coming from Dothan, Montgomery. They had heard about this, and they were coming to buy the rolls at our frozen food fair. She said, we've got over 300 orders for your rolls. And I went, stop taking orders. <laughs> I can't. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to set up at the church. I set up an assembly line of ladies with mixers in the kitchen. We put space heaters in the Sunday school rooms. Literally, we proofed in Sunday school rooms, we mixed in the kitchen, and we baked in people's ovens all around the church to get those 300 pans of rolls made. Was the health department in on this? No, no. (laughs) And so after this, everything after that year, I said, God, maybe you're trying to tell me something. There's something about these rolls that people like, and I might need to try to do this. So I went to my father and I said, Daddy, you've got a little 2,000, little two, you got a 2,000 square foot metal warehouse building that you're storing carpet and some furniture in. Can I have the front half of that and get it inspectable for me to start making rolls there? And he said, okay. But his question to me was, sister, you can do this. I just want to ask you something. He said, when I sell a dining room suit or a a sofa, I know how much money I'm going to make. How much money can you make off a pan of rolls? And I went, Daddy, it's not the question. 
The question is how many pounds of rolls can we sell? That was the real question in my mind. Now, did you realize you're thinking like an entrepreneur at that point? You're not oh, thinking absolutely. Like a baker. Absolutely. I'm thinking like, you know, God is telling me, is nudging me. You can do this. You can do this. You can feed. And it never was about a pan of rolls to me. It was about how can I make this a better world with these rolls? Because I know many times those rolls of my grandmother nourished me when I was sick or when we were together as a family. And those were memories I never forgot. Well, you remember that you had turkey, you remember, but you remember those rolls. You remembered eating those rolls. And that just felt like warmth. That felt like home. That felt like love. That just felt like somebody cared about me because I was eating something that a lot of people were eating turkey, but not a lot of people were eating those wonderful rolls like I was eating and, and like my family was eating. And you made a promise to God during that point. I did. You? I said, if you will help me, Dear God, if you will help me. I was becoming a single mother with two children, two daughters. And I said, if you'll help me and the girls, I promise you I will help feed hungry people. I will do whatever I can to make this a better place if you will, if you will just help me do this. Because I feel that I'm supposed to be doing this and not doing anything else. And, and that's truly what the way it all happened. I'm telling you truthfully from my heart that... I really did not know at that time. If I, I had people tell me, you need to go back to doing what you were doing because you're making money doing that. You don't know if you're going to make any money doing this. And I said, it was never about making money to me. It was about sharing something that meant so much to me. How scary was that right there on that edge? Knowing you know, that, that there was safety in staying in what you were doing. Right but there was the possibility. There was something in my heart that just said, do it, do it. And I never looked back from the first step I took. This is the difference in me and so many other people who have a great idea, a great product, and they are afraid to take that first step. They know they've got something, but you've got to be willing to step out there and try you got to be willing to try. Risk is a big part of what we it do is. in this podcast. It is. And it's a, and it's a big part of this, the, the greatness of America. It is. It is. And I remember when I had to go borrow the money to buy my first used ovens, I had to put up my station wagon, which was the only thing I really had that was paid for. One of those station wagons with the wood on the sides, big Buick thing that I delivered rolls in, but I had it and it was worth $4,000 or whatever it was worth. And they let me use that for collateral to buy my first ovens. And I thought, if I lose my car, I lose my car, but I got to have these ovens. And it was like, I never looked back. That was the thing about it. I never questioned my path. I always was looking at my path, knowing where it was going. In my heart, I knew where it was going. And you faced obstacles that you weren't even aware of oh. in terms of, of the grocery store business. Tell yeah, me about absolutely. that. Well, like I said, I was, we're talking 1992. We're talking a male dominated world in business. Um, I had no, but I never really looked at it like that. I just, I looked at it like, 
I know I've got something here and I know it's going to work. And I just never, like I said, and I think it had to be my faith in God that just kept my eyes focused on where I was going because there's so many people that that said to me, well, how many rolls are you going to sell next year? I said, that's not the question. How many rolls am I going to sell two years from now, five years from now? How many rolls am I going to sell in Atlanta, Georgia? How many am I going to sell in New Orleans? How many am I going to sell in Baton Rouge? I mean, I, I had my sights set on Mississippi. I had my sights set on Georgia, Tennessee. I mean, I was I was not going to be stopped. I was going to share these roles with the world. Now, when you, uh, let's take through the progression here. You're in your station wagon, which is hocked, so to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> for your mm-hmm. ovens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're out having to go make sales calls on these uh, grocery mm-hmm. stores. Mm-hmm. And most of them are telling you to take a hike, right? Not really. Pretty much every time I got one of these grocery stores to taste my rolls, they went, well, I'll try them. I'll, I'll, have, I'll take a pallet and see what I can do with it. And, I mean, I know that most people, when they first meet me, they think, she's just a little genteel southern lady. She's not, you know... Honey, I was mad as hell when they only wanted one pallet. I was going, you need to have at least three pallets, and you're going to be sorry you didn't order but one. I wasn't going to let them off the hook, and I, and I was right. But but how in the world did you generate the word of mouth that I've heard about that was coming about at that Because point? at that time, you understand, there was no internet. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There wasn't even a computer in my office at the time. It was truly word of mouth. And the way I did it was, I don't say I did it. I I still say it was a God thing. Every grocery store that I went into started with the Western Supermarkets here in Birmingham, was one of the first chains that I did. And then I went after smaller grocery store chains that catered to our customer, the ones that liked to have a nice product like that because we were more expensive than any other roll you could buy in the grocery store at the time. We were at $2.29 pan. And I mean, that was a lot of money. The only competition I had in the frozen bread category was Pepperidge Farm at the time. And they were doing those loads of garlic bread. How long did it take for you to understand that you were doing something the big boys were we not doing? We created a category in the grocery business. Sister Schubert's created a frozen bread category in the grocery business back in 1993. And it just grew from there. And other people tried to come in. And Pillsbury tried to buy me early on. The thing about them was they tried to compete with us. They tried to come in and make rolls in the frozen bread Pillsbury. category. Pillsbury did. The Doughboy. We knocked them out of the park. We, we just completely did away with them. And, and we were just this little bitty bakery in Laverne, Alabama that was creating a frozen bread category that they realized was a huge deal. One of the first times I realized that something was really happening was I'd been selling rolls for not even a year. And Marshall's Biscuits was a big thing back then. They had wonderful little bitty biscuits. This was just like our rolls. were like grandmother's little biscuits, and they were selling like crazy. And they were out of Mobile. And Harris Marzette called me one day, and he said, um, can we talk about possibility of merging our companies together? And I went, well, I don't 
I don't know. I don't know. And he was persistent. He called me two or three times and over the course of about a month and a half. And mind you, I had only been in, in the grocery store for about six months. Had maybe sales of $150,000 that year. And not making much money yourself, right? And oh, I was working for nothing. I was just working hard for nothing. And he said, I was paying the people that were working for me more than I was making myself. But I knew I needed them. He came, I had a guy that came to manage my bakery from, from Borden's, and he was fantastic, and he is still with me today. But um, I remember him calling me finally one day, and he was going, well, I kept saying, I'm just not sure about this. I don't know. And he said, well, well how much would it take to, for us to even talk about this? And I'm sitting there realizing, because I know what my sales are. And I said, well, maybe $5 million would get me to talk to you. And he went, when can we talk? And I went, you know what? I think I better keep this. If you think it's worth $5 million, I think I better keep this right now. Now, now let, me, let me ask you this. What would $5 million have meant to you at that A point? A ton. The world. But what meant more to me was the dream that I had, the vision that I had for this company. And I kept thinking, if he envisions it, then maybe I, my vision's not so bad. Maybe my vision is a good one, and maybe it's going to work. And it did. And do you know what? Today, guess who owns Marshall's Biscuits? Tell me that story. Sister Schubert's. Yeah. Well, it turned out that um, eventually they tried to copy us with park house rolls and sort of be in it, but they couldn't. They couldn't compete. Bill's Ray couldn't compete. Nobody's been able to make that roll. It's just my grandmother's recipe, and nobody's going to ever make it like we do. And <laughs> this this just so happened that um, one day when we sold our company to Lancaster Colony, T. Marzetti, a specialty foods group out of Lancaster, Lancaster out of Columbus, Ohio, I did it for two reasons. I did it, number one, because they had the broad-based team, after just seven years of me being in business, to take us to national brand status. They were ready to roll, and it would have taken a lot for us to roll out nationwide. But they also had a history of purchasing family-run companies and asking those families to continue to run the company, help them run the company. And that was the main reason that I did. And because of that, we were able two years later, to buy Marshall's Biscuits. And they're, they, they made co-pack, co-branded, you know, products for store, store brand products that were knockoffs of our rolls. And we still do that to this day. But they're not our rolls. They're a recipe totally different, but we still control it. What was the toughest part of building this company? The toughest part for me was realizing that some people just didn't believe in it the way I did. But I never stopped believing. Even though they didn't believe, I did. And I began to surround myself with people that did believe in it, just like me. Because I think that's the key to success, is that you surround yourself with people who have somewhat the same vision, but they bring to the to the equation, something that's totally different from me, who's just the, got it, let's do it. And then you got to have somebody that says, but 
Like my husband, I've always called my husband George. He was my first food broker that I went to sell my rolls to, to help me sell my rolls to grocery stores. And I've always said that George was like, I'm jumping off the cliff and he's building that net as fast as he can to say, but wait, 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 just a minute. We're going to do it, but let's do it this way instead of that way. So the two of us together made the ultimate team to take this product and this company where it went. And what is it about um, jumping off the cliff, which every entrepreneur who worth the salt has to do it, at has one to point. do it at one point or another. Yeah. What is it about that that was attractive to you? I just think I've always I've always had that spirit within me, and my daddy said that about me. I mean, it was like whatever I tackled, I was just gonna go at it, hundred and ten percent, and and then. If, if I stumbled a little bit, I just get up and go again. It's just something about it. You've got to have it. And I've read some books and I've heard some things about what is an entrepreneurial spirit, what is a person who is an entrepreneur, and we all have similar traits. There are probably 10 traits that are just alike in every one that I've ever read about. It's just there are certain things that you just won't let stop you. You won't give up. And where does that come from in you? Somewhere within you, from my daddy, my grandfather, my grandmother. It, it just came from our family. And every entrepreneur faces a moment at which he stares into the abyss and he understands that, um, mm -hmm. boy, if I... It's either going to go or it's not. What was that yep. moment for you? Well, I think it was when I had to make the decision... That, that little bakery in Troy was not going to do it for me. And I had to borrow a million dollars and build a new bakery, a state-of-the-art bakery somewhere. And I went to Troy first and asked them if they would help me do that. And I think it's kind of like in the Bible, you're never a prophet in your own land. Those men on that industrial board there in Troy saw me as the little girl that would ride her bicycle around the square and go to bird drugs and get an ice cream cone. They just couldn't envision me being able to do what I was trying to tell them I wanted to do. But there was a wonderful guy, the mayor of Laverne, Alabama, that said, I believe in you. And there was also a banker with AmSouth Bank, John Bentley, that said, I believe in you. And I remember when I went to him to ask for the loan, he looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm going out on a limb. He was, he was a loan officer. And he said, I'm going out on a limb to do this because you're showing me. Oh, we had done a business plan, showed him how we were going to make all this money. And he was going, this is unrealistic. There's no way you're going to have these sales, which we surpassed, by the way. But he said, this just doesn't seem realistic. But I believe in you. And if you will take out a million-dollar life insurance policy on yourself, I, I will loan you this money because I believe it will work if you're running it and if you're in charge of it, it'll work. And I took out a million-dollar life insurance policy on myself because he said, if something happens to you, this isn't going to work, and I will get my money back. <laughs> but he says, as long as you're doing it, I think we've got it, got it going, and it's going to work. That's the kind of crazy um, loan things that happened to me that probably didn't happen in today's world. When I had the first order from Bruno's, 
grocery store chain here in Birmingham for five truckloads of rolls. That was my biggest order to, that I'd ever had. And I was going to need to build up the inventory to be able to ship it. And they weren't going to pay me for it until it shipped. And so I... Cash flow problems could... Cash flow. But I asked Bruno's to do something, and they did it. I said, because they usually only issued their POs like two weeks in advance. And I said, I need these POs now. And you can stagger them if you want to, but I need copies of them to show to my banker. I took the POs from Bruno's to the bank, and I said, if you'll loan me this much money so that I can build this inventory, I'll be able to ship to them and I'll be able to pay you back. And that banker did it. That was unheard of. Nobody would, nobody would give you money on a PO, but they did, and it worked. And I shipped them all, and I delivered them all, and I paid him back. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Um, probably my biggest failure, because it was so hard for me to think of failure with what was going on with me back then. I mean, I know the biggest failure that I had, but it wasn't back then. It was later on. I was very unhappy with a product that we were doing for Walmart, and they they always want something different, which is fine, and I love that about them. But they wanted a double bag of rolls, and we didn't have any way to do that. We had our bags, but then the only way we could do it in a timely way for them was to just get a clear plastic bag and bag up two bags of our rolls in a clear plastic bag and ship them. And I didn't like it. And I said, I'm going to fix that. We're going to have to do a better bag, a better way of presenting this in the grocery store. And we had filled their order. They, they gave us their orders. And then two weeks before Christmas, they ordered another three truckloads of those rolls. And the new bags weren't going to come in for a week. And so we weren't going to be able to bag those up and ship them. I said, we can ship them to you, but it's going to be a week later than you're asking for them. And they canceled all of our rolls out of Walmart. That was my biggest failure that I didn't realize because my manager, my plant manager came to me and said, let's just order enough bags so we can get through in case they order more. And I said, no, I don't like the way those look. I'm not going to do that. And if I would listened to him, that was my biggest failure because, oh, they had to take them back again. But it, it was a scary moment for us that Walmart was going to knock us out because we didn't. And it was not our fault. It was their fault for wanting more roles than they had asked for. Demand can get you in trouble. It can. Get me in a lot of trouble. A lot of times it did. But um, but anyway, that was, I think, my biggest fact. That's the one I remember more than anything was I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, you were right and I was wrong and I'm so sorry. And what did you learn out of that? I learned that you listen to the people around you that are smarter than you are about some things. Because he was the one doing all the ordering of inventory and he was the one taking care of everything. And he said... Walmart has a tendency to come in and ask for more. We might ought to get some more just in case. And I went, oh, I don't want to do that. And he acquiesced to me, even though he didn't want to. 
And he's still there with me. And he, he and I still talk about that. And I never questioned his advice ever. Never did again. Whatever he said, I did. Was there one moment of validation out there where you felt like you had arrived? Um, yes. And you're going to find this funny. It was way late in the, in the game. After we had sold to Marzetti in Lancaster Colony, um, I had struggles with giving over control of certain things that I did not like, things that they might want to change. And I would go, no, 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 no. And I'd fight it and fight it. And one particular thing was about the um, shortening that we were using. It was just Crisco shortening. My grandmother used it. I used it all my life. But it had partially hydrogenated oil in it. And all of a sudden, the world says you can't use partially hydrogenated oil. And I went, no, it'll ruin our roles. They won't be the same. They won't be like they're supposed to be. And I had to acquiesce to them. Finally, I had to give in and say, okay, all right, we'll use fully. But I mean, we used every short, we tried every shortening out there, everything. And I would say, no, 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 no. And then finally, one day I realized, I said, sister, Crisco is your shortening that I used. And I said, they're having to fight this battle much more so than you are because this is what they make is this partially hydrogenated. And then all of a sudden I go to the grocery store and I see this little Crisco can that's green label that says hydrogenated and we've done all this research. This will replace our partially hydrogenated oil. So I called up Smuckers who now owns Crisco then on Crisco. I'm not sure they still do. Things change. But at that point in time, it was Smuckers that owned Crisco. And I said, I need a sample, a big sample, so that I can make up some rolls to see if this will work for us. And they sent them to me. They sent it to me. And so we switched to that one. But I thought that and thought that. And the, the night that I hadn't decided what to do about it, I was so upset. And I told George, I said, these are not my roles anymore. They are not going to be my roles. And I was so upset, so upset. And we had to go to church. I mean, we had to go to school because it was Halloween. And the children had a Halloween little carnival thing. And so we walk in the front door. And I calm myself down, brush my eyes off. And I'm going, it's okay, it's okay. And we walk in and we're buying our little tickets and everything. And I see these two little children standing over in the corner. And they're talking to each other and talking to their mother. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And so they run up to me and they go, your sister Schubert? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, we love your roles. And George looked at me and he said, see, they are your roles. They're not their roles. They're still your roles. So that was the moment when I really thought I was going to lose it. And then two little children ran up to me and said, no. There are your roles. And after all this time, you still get emotional about it. I do. I can see it in your eyes. I do. I do. Because they're not just roles to me. They're not. They're, they're warmth. They're sharing. They're giving to someone. They're, when I get emails from uh, soldiers that are serving in Afghanistan, and, and they tell me that they get those roles for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and it brings back home to them, and they're so far away from home, that's why we do it. That's why I still do it. That's exactly why I still do it. And that's why I am a mama 
fair when it comes to my roles. You're not going to change anything without me knowing it and not being a real big part of it. Uh, tell me, talk to me about your about your process and and how you know how you. It must have been tough taking from. You're making them yeah. in your own oven. And, and Sunbeam Mix Master. <laughs> yeah, t- tell me about that. How it started out. Yeah, well, it started out. We would mix it up in my little Sunbeam Mix Master. And then we finally bought a used 20-quart, 20-quart mixer. We, we mix in 600-pound mixers now. And um, we gradually took that product, that, that recipe, and we, we never lost the quality. We just kept doing it until we got it right. And we grew as fast as we could, but as slow as we had to, to maintain that quality. I had people tell me I was going to use butter-flavored oil. We still use that AAA butter. We don't, we don't, everything is exactly the same, except for that shortening. And we've got that now, too. So, uh, Tell me more about the, about the uh, driving around with the station wagon days. <laughs> what <laughs> what you literally days. had to do. Well, there were many times when... Our first three customers was a little curb market in Troy, one in Montgomery, a curb market type atmosphere, and then a lady in Dothan, Alabama with fine things, great things was her name, Miss Julia. And I'll never forget her. She was the easiest sell I ever had because I walked in. She's, she made casseroles. She did home cooked casseroles and things. And I walked in with two pans of rolls, and I said, I make these homemade rolls, and I freeze them, and she's, I said, would you like to try them? And she said, no, I would like to buy them. She said, I know I can sell these. So, I, and Mr. T.J. Best in Montgomery was a steak place. He sold fine cuts of meat, but he was a little bitty market on Mulberry Street, Montgomery, little bitty off the beaten path, and I went in with those, and he was the best person to advertise my roles. People would come in to buy a steak because it was the steak place to go buy steak. And he would put two pans of my rolls up on the meat counter. And he had to install three frozen bread, frozen cases in his grocery store, in his little grocery store. He had a little grocery store and I took up half the space with my rolls because I was the only place in Montgomery that he that people could buy them. And at that time, and it was uh, those, those three people started this business for me. And then here in Birmingham, Western Supermarket, I remember not too far from where we're going to be tonight and in, in Mountain Brook, the Western Supermarket there, he agreed to buy some of my rolls. And then it became like crazy. He, he was like calling me three times a week going, and I'll never forget Christmas Eve morning, he called me and he said, I'm out of rolls. You, I, I've got to have some rolls. I've got to have some. And I went, well, I've only, we, we've worked all day and all night and all week. And I said, we've probably got 24 cases of rolls left. He said, I'll take them. I'll take them. I got in my car, put them in my car and drove them on Christmas Eve up here to Birmingham to him. That's the kind of thing that you do when you want to have somebody when you want to thank somebody for taking a chance on you, he took a chance on me. Now, what does that mean to you? Someone like that, believing in mm-hmm. your little business. Anybody that did that, it's like, I will forever be grateful. And I say that with 
all the warmth and heart that I can. The people that believed in me and my roles in the beginning, my family, my father, my mother, my grocery store buyers that I first met and encountered, my George that I first fed the rolls to. And this is hysterically funny because he tasted those rolls. He's, are they any good? And I said, they're the best rolls you'll ever taste. And so he, he let's heat some up and feed. And he said, all right, I'll try to take them and sell them for you. And he became my first broker and my husband and everything else. And I remember saying to him maybe five, six years ago, I said, tell me what you really thought about those rolls the first time I brought them in to your office and showed them to you. And he looked at me and he said, I knew I wasn't going to have any trouble selling those rolls. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get the role lady to marry me. <laughs> and that's a true story. I mean, he doesn't say things that aren't true. And I never knew. I mean, it, we were business friends, business associates for two years before I ever realized that this man really cared about me in other ways. So it was great. Tell me more about that. Because the, well, the, the, the romance part of this is kind of yeah. interesting. Well, it was like he believed in the product like I did. And so it was like, I have somebody who's working in this business that believes we've got a great thing going. And so he was, he was a broker in Montgomery and he was calling on Winn-Dixie. But I said, I got to go to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I got to go to Tennessee. I got to go to Birmingham. I've got to go to all these places and I don't know how to do this. And so his company agreed to let him kind of go with me and be the broker that did the talk because he knew the talk and he knew how to, tell him what to do, and he knew how to make the deals. And I didn't know how to do anything but make the best rolls, but he knew how to sell them. And so it became a partnership in, in the very, from the very beginning when we first sold the rolls to Winn-Dixie. It became a really amazing journey for the both of us because he and I together walked this through to where it is today. And was the, the sale to to Winn-Dixie. Was that the big thing? That was the first big grocery store we got. Yeah. That was my first big grocery store. And I'll never forget George when he first, he said, okay, I'll take your rolls on. He said, but I've got to come by your bakery and see if you can supply Winn-Dixie. Because he was a smart man. He said, I'm not going to go there and try to sell these rolls and then you not be able to supply them. And I looked at him, I said, you supply, you get the order and I'll supply the rolls. And that was the first time that he realized and I realized that he believed in me when I got when I filled the order, and I believed in him when he got the order. So it became a partnership. Let's let's fill another order. Let's get another grocery store. You know, and it became fun. He said, "I've been in the grocery business for twenty five years, eating dog biscuits to try to sell them." He said, "I knew I was going to sell this. This was going to be fun, and we just had fun." Well, actually, because after all, being an entrepreneur can be the loneliest existence. <laughs> and when you have somebody share your vision, you're kind of sharing that vision. It was it was really neat, and and I never wavered. I never wavered, and it took him about a year, maybe a year and a half, to fully come on board, because he was still working for his brokerage company, and I kept t trying to entice him. I said, I think I need you. I need you to work for me. I don't need you to work for them anymore. I mean, because we got to go to other markets. I was seeing the whole picture. I was envisioning where we were going. And I said, but you're going to have to be the one to help me because I don't know how to do this without you. I was learning a lot from him because I was paying a lot of attention to what he was doing when we would go. But he just had a way. He, he just knew, knew how to sell. 
What were some of the important lessons you learned in those days? Well, one of the most important lessons I learned is never run out of inventory. If you And don't let anybody tell you, oh, flour is just flour. We didn't have your flour, so we shipped you this. I said, you can come pick this flour up. Because I never was one to say, oh, okay, and acquiesce to what somebody was trying to sell me. I said, you got, you're not, if you don't bring my flour, my shortening, my stuff, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Did you get burned at one point on that? Mm-mm. Nope. I did not. I did not let that happen. And partly because I had Bill, who had come in at that time that worked for Borden, and he would project what we needed. And, and sometimes he would be the one that would, you know, be there to inventory and take it in. And he, if it wasn't the right flower, if it wasn't the right shortening, if it wasn't just what it was supposed to be, it had to go back. And, and I had a good um, buyer with Cisco that understood my point. And, and I told him, I said, Jack, don't ever send me something in here that's a substitute. If you can't supply me with what I need, let me know. I'll go to the grocery store and try to buy the flower. I'll try, and I did sometimes have to go buy 20 pound bags of Hillsbury flour. Because I was short. They, they shorted me. And I just, you know, had good grocery stores around me that understood. And they would carry extra stuff just for me. So it was like, but it was a God thing. God just took care of every step of the way for me. Every step of the way. I never had a real stumbling block. Never really did. It was just, it, it was always like, this. It never went back down. It just never did when we encountered issues. with Because virtually everything we use to make rolls is a commodity item. And when something like aluminum or butter or flour or eggs or sugar, if there was a problem, we just had people on top of it helping us find what we needed. I'll never forget once when butter went sky high. I think it was like $4.80 a pound. Here, and we had to, I, I bought butter from Australia. I could get butter cheaper from Australia on a ship over here than I could buy here in America. And I said, there's something wrong with that. And I did, I complained about that. And that's never happened again. But there was a point where we just stayed on top of everything because we didn't have that many items. It wasn't like we had 400 items that we were trying to track. And yet you did diversify without, with, with some other items. Well, well, of course, but basically we, we don't have more than 15, 20 items in our whole bakery that we use on a regular basis. There are some of our bakeries that do the salad dressings that have 480 different items that come in. Different oils, different this, different that. We, we just use butter, oil, butter, shortening, flour, eggs, sugar. We, we have basic ingredients. And, and how difficult was it? for you to, to make the transition into other items. Because after all, once you get away from your bread and butter, no pun intended, mm -hmm. um, that's tough. Well, what happened is right off the bat, I'll never forget, this was another thing that happened to me when I first went in with my little Park House Rolls. That was what I made, was Park House Rolls. And one of the first buyers that I encountered in Geneva, Alabama, with a distribution center, said to me, well, if you had a line of items, I might be able to take one or two, but you come in here with just one thing. And so I went back and I said, okay, I made cinnamon rolls all the time. I made orange rolls. And I loved, when I lived in Texas, the sausage kolaches that were, you know, so I bought cocktail smokies, 
put them in there. I had four new items just like that. <coughs> and used the same dough, just different fillings. So it was basically all the same dough. We just had different fillings that we did. And we started out with four items. Then we went to cornbreads and then we went to lemon blueberry. But basically we stuck with rolls. We didn't go way off into hush puppies and different Because that's where a lot of things. companies get off track. You got to stay with what you know. Stay with what you know. And how tough was it for you to sell out, <clears throat> give up control? That was very tough for me to give up. The, but the neat thing about it is <laughs> this company that we sold to still has me. I'm sitting out there on a conference call today because they're not going to do anything without my approval. Part of the deal was I still had control over research and development. But they would never change the recipe without my approval. And I, I gave them a list of unrealistic demands, and they said okay to every one of them. That's why it's worked. That's why this has worked. I have given speeches to other corporations that say, why did this work for you and it doesn't work for other people? I said, because you buy a company. The reason a company's doing well is because of the people that are running the company. <laughs> you don't just kick them out the door and go, okay, we got it now. We can do this. And they realize the uniqueness of this product. They realize they're not just buying your recipe. Right. They were buying me in the deal. And that was part of it, that I had to stay on. That was not going to, they were, they were not going to be happy if I didn't stay on. So, so I have. And so what's your. Uh, <clears throat> and George too stayed on for a long time. Right. And, and so what's your daily life? You're out there doing a lot of promotion. What, what kind of, what are you doing now? Yeah. <clears throat> my life is, I mean, I've moved into a second phase of my life because when we sold the company, I was able to form the Barnes Family Foundation where we can actually do things to give back to the people and communities that have done so much to, for us. Everywhere I go, people eat our rolls. And I'm very thankful and grateful. And everywhere I go, we try to find some place, some organization, some people in, in that community that are doing a good thing. And we go and thank them. And we encourage them with not just rolls, but encourage them with sometimes monetary in, encouragement to keep doing what they're doing. And you have an orphanage? <clears throat> we do have an orphanage. Tell me about that. Well, it's that. not really an orphanage. It's a foster home because um, we have foster parents that are caring for children that are orphaned and abandoned, not just, just in an orphanage situation. But it's in the country of Ukraine, and right now it's in pretty bad shape because of where it's located. When Russia invaded Crimea and then came into Ukraine, they pretty much shut down our little foster home because they wanted to take it over. And we said, no, you're not going to demand anything. They wanted to store weapons and things where the children play and that kind of thing. And we just, we just closed it, closed it. And hopefully with God's help, it, that part of Ukraine will, will be okay again and we can reopen it and we will have families again living there with, and taking care of precious children that are in such a need now. But that is one thing we did do. But we also feed the hungry, and we also believe in giving scholarships to children that would not have an opportunity to have higher education without the help of, say, our foundation. 
And that's that promise coming back, right? Or someone that cares, yes. We had that come full circle in that one of the little children that lived in Sasha's home in Ukraine actually came to America and graduated from Troy University with a four-year um, degree in um, business education. So it has come all the way around again, which is great, which is wonderful. You know, we're surrounded by young people today who are seem to be fearful of taking risk. Mm -hmm. Your personification of what risk can get you in this world. Mm -hmm. Calculated mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those people? Well, the main thing I'd like to say is just believe in yourself because if you don't believe in you, if you let someone else tell you that they don't believe in you and you listen to them, first thing you got to do is totally 100% believe in you, believe in your product, believe in your service, believe in whatever it is that you're wanting to do. And then you take step by step in that direction to make that come true for you. Don't let anyone discourage you. <clears throat> I had lots of people try to discourage me. I just never let it happen. Never let it happen. Because you've got to keep your, your vision for your life and what it is you're trying to do in the in your sights and don't let anyone veer you off of it most importantly believe in yourself what does america mean to you america means hope it means opportunity it means a way to live your life without fear and without judgment for the most part, and to be able to accomplish what it is you want to do in this life with the help of so many things that this country offers in the way of giving you assistance. Because I had that help. I had that help. And, I, and it's still there. It's still out there. And it's still, there are people out there in this world that want to help you live your dream, become a part of this wonderful economy that we have here in America today. And, and there are people out there that want to help you with that. And I have people that helped me with that. Or I might not be sitting here talking to you about this if it hadn't been for those people that believed in me and said, I'll take a chance. You know, you have to do your, you have to mind your P's and Q's and you have to do your, your homework and you have to do what you got to do. But if you do all of that and somebody says, well, I think, I think you might have something, then you might have something. What would you want someone to take away from your story? That all things are possible, especially with God's help. Because I didn't do any of this without his help. I held tightly to my dream with this hand, and this hand was held up to him the whole time. Without his help, none of this would have happened for me. I do believe that with all my heart. When you were facing off against basically the Goliaths of the food service industry, um, did you ever lose heart? No, I never did. And that's because I always just looked up and he was my strength and he just kept me going. When there were moments when I thought, am I really doing the right thing? Is this going to work? They were just brief moments because I always had something immediately that lifted me back up that said, you can do it. You can do it. If it was the night before we tried to ship the first shipment of rolls to Winn-Dixie and I fell asleep in the chair cooking orange rolls, 
and somebody woke me up at eight o'clock, I'd been up for three days straight, pretty much. I would go get two hours of sleep and come back. And I was sound asleep at eight o'clock when somebody woke me up and they said, the Winn-Dixie truck is here. <laughs> that was a moment when I said, okay, now I've got to call George and tell him we're still with three pallets short on Orange Wells. What's he going to say? And George said, I think he's going to be excited that you got everything but three pallets of roast. <laughs> and I said, but I promise we'll get them next week. We'll have them there Tuesday. We'll have them there Wednesday. We'll work all as hard as we can. And it was so funny because George just left. He said, I never dreamed you would get that many rolls done. And he said, <clears throat> he said, don't worry, I'll handle it for you. And he did. And they took the three pallets later because normally, you know, grocery stores in today's world, <clears throat> some of them still are very mean. And if you don't get the order in, just when you say you're going to, they'll say, cancel it. <clears throat> but he took them. He said, I'll take them. So, and he did. And I said, I'll never be late again. Never be late again. <laughs> And I really wasn't after that. We had it worked out after that. But when you were, you know, when you were making no money and you were paying the people who worked for you a lot more than you were paying yourself, you potentially, you could have fallen right on your face. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't given up, I could have for sure. But I just never did. I immediately took on the responsibility of all these people that I'd hired. I said, they need this job. And I need to make sure they get it. And so they keep it. And, and they all got inspired by that. I said, we got to work as hard as we can. And it was like I was energized by them. They seemed energized by me. And it was like a, we just were in it together. We were in it together. Um, I'll never forget when I had to ask them. The orders were outpacing what we could do because I left Sunday open for everybody to go to church. And we had to work on Sunday. And I said, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to work seven days a week to get these orders out. And I said, what are we going to do? Can y'all, will y'all do it? Will you work? And Carolyn, who still runs my line to this day, still works at the bakery, runs the line. And she, came and she said, well, sister, we can do that because I've always been sister. I've never been Miss Schubert or anything. I've been sister to everybody that works at that bakery. And she said, well, would it be okay if we came in and brought our music and we sang some hymns while we were working on Sunday and I said of course you can do that and I'm gonna tell you right now when I got there and all those hundred voices were singing those old gospel hymns don't tell me those roles weren't blessed gosh almighty they were and it was like that was the best church service I've ever been to and I thought you don't have to be in a church to worship God you don't have to and um, I've left in one of my speeches. I say, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's a whole new meaning for me. <laughs> <laughs> when you walk into a store today and you see your rolls, what are you thinking? I get tears in my eyes every time. I'm certainly checking them to make sure they're lined up right and they look right. And there's not one that doesn't look right. I constantly, George used to call it checking the stores. I check the stores. Every grocery store I walk into, I'm checking them. See how they look. And sometimes I just keep, I can't help it. I get tears in my eyes thinking, wow, all over the country, there they are. How, does that, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel very blessed. Very blessed. To have done something, created something from my grandmother who created it, to carry it on is, is such a blessing that you can't, 
you can't replace that feeling that you're making a difference in somebody's life by possibly picking up. And when I see, the biggest thing is when I see somebody in the grocery store with Sister Schubert rolls in their buggy, I can't help but thank them. I do it every time. When I see somebody with a couple of pans of my rolls in their, or a bag of my rolls in their, in their grocery cart, I just go, thank you, thank you for buying those. And a lot of times I just walk off. I don't even tell them who I am. <laughs> Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever. <laughs>